Welcome to the Interledger community call for the 1st of April, 2020. Um, yeah, we've got two items on the agenda from the forum post. Uh, the one was discussing uh, payment pointers and how they relate to content negotiation for different types of use cases. Um, and then also we've got somebody who wanted to discuss the spring wallets and how they're doing the JWT auth and surrogate access tokens. Um, is there anything else people would like to add to the agenda? Um, so uh, the, the person that was wanting to discuss the, um, the wallet access stuff is, are they on the call right now? I sure am. Uh, Ian, okay. So Ian, you have a different handle on Interledger, so I was. Yeah, sorry about <laughs> yeah. that. The, the only question is, I just want to ask how long is your, um, how long do you think you would take? Because I, I assume the other topic could consume pretty much all the time potentially. And I just want to be cognizant of that. So if yours yeah, is short, so we should start with yours. It's, it's, I don't know, 10, maybe 15 minutes, depending on whether or not people have questions. And I'm also, I'm kind of tag teaming it with Noah Kramer, who's also on the call, but his portion is is short as well. I, I I think since this audience is already well aware of a lot of you know, the underpinnings of Interledger, there's less ground to cover than when we presented this internally at Ripple, where there's there's uh, it's it's a it's both a technical and non-technical audience, so there's more ground to cover. So I, I think ten or fifteen minutes. Okay, I, I think let's start with yours because I'm pretty certain the next topic will uh, consume yeah. most of the rest of the time. So um, yeah, let, let's just try and move maybe quicker through it so we do leave time for that. But otherwise, yeah, the sure. floor is yours. Yeah, you got it. Let me um, just get my window shared here. Um, why? Sorry, I'm just trying to get the right. Okay, there we go. Uh, okay, uh, so can you see my browser window? Yeah, we can. Okay, I can zoom in on it a tiny bit too. It's too small. So, um, yeah, we have set up uh, just a, a wallet for um, some of what we're doing within the Spring organization. Uh, so if I click log in, uh, this is actually logging in through my GitHub account. This is my GitHub handle, uh, which you may have seen me reply to the topic for today, the topics for today's call on the Interledger community. And so on this menu, I have uh, this link for the Interledger wallet. And when I click here, I'm currently signed in through a, an Interledger connector that we have set up within Spring's infrastructure, I'm signed in through my GitHub account. And to go into uh, some of the nuts and bolts of what's happening, um, I am signed in by virtue of an RS-256 Java web token. Unfortunately, Chrome can be kind of squirrely about copy pasting that. So if I go over here, um, and I go to debug this. Uh, this is only happening because of um, core settings that are preventing it from validating things. But as you can see, I actually I'm signed in through this. So the, the nice thing about using this method of authentication is that it's allowing us to have uh, login to our uh, XRP ledger based wallet and our uh, interledger based wallet. And the other thing that we added on top of this is usually when you set up an account, you're either configuring an account with uh, GSOM web token based authentication or you're configuring it with simple auth. And we actually made a small extension to where on our wallet, you have this create a token button. And this will actually give you an access token that acts as a surrogate form of authentication. So you have a primary version, which is RS-256 based uh, Java or JSON web token authentication to identify your account. And then you could also do simple auth as well by using this token. So 
Okay, now that I've shown that, I'm going to hand it over to Noah just to demo using that access token uh, that's created through uh, this wallet with um, an SDK. So assuming assuming he's ready and I didn't just shine the light. I am ready, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. You have to stop sharing so that I can share. Okay, I have stopped. Uh, let's see. Desktop. While Noah's getting set up, I just want to point out that um, this auth mechanism goes all the way down into the Java connector. So the Java connector actually supports multiple forms of authentication at the same time. So Noah's going to show you uh, an account that can basically authenticate the way Ian showed with the RS-256 tokens or with the simple auth tokens at the same time. Uh, so can everyone see my screen? Should be some code. Yes, we can. Cool. Yep. Um, so what we did to sort of make things easier for developers to um, hack and develop on our Spring ILP infrastructure, um, as well as you know we're paired with Rafiki, so you can send money from Spring to Rafiki. Um, we created a, an SDK within the Spring SDK um, to handle ILP functionality. Um, what we realized as we were going to different hackathons um, is that people were really interested in um, developing on ILP, um, but they were just sort of confused about how to use it, and, and it was much easier to just use the um, existing X SDK over XRP. Um, so we wanted to change that. Um, and so this is just a small demo of uh, checking your balance um, on the connector as well as uh, sending a payment to another user um, on the network. Um, a lot of this code is just sort of boilerplate, um, you know, logging statements, stuff like that. Uh, but the real meat of it is uh, you can just create a, an ILP client um, and call things like get balance with a, uh, an account ID and an auth token. And this auth token will be um, what you, um, what you generated in the wallet front end. Um, and then down here, you can send a payment by creating a payment request, which takes an amount that you want to send, um, a payment pointer. In this case, um, I have a user set up uh, with account ID demo receiver, and this is their payment pointer. Um, and then uh, you can just call send payment with that payment request and uh, that auth token. Um, so. You can see my auth token here. Please don't steal any of my fake funds. Um, but I, I, if I run this, what it'll do is get my balance, which was this big number, asset scale nine. So it's like 20, I think it's 22.499 uh, XRP. Um, and I just sent 100, it's actually millidrops um, to this receiver. Um, and you can see that my balance went from uh, basically 400 to 300 um, and you know obviously this doesn't cover a lot of the more complicated use cases but for someone who's just trying to hack on ILP um, this makes it a lot easier uh, to do that and that's all I have Hey, this is, this is David here. So uh, I guess adding on to that, um, Spring has SDK support for these primitives in Swift, Java for Android, and of course, server-side Java, which is what Noah just showed, and JavaScript, uh, and more to come. There's uh, nascent Rust support uh, and a few other languages. So um, hopefully we'll have a, a pretty broad SDK support for Interledger. Um, at least in the Java layer, we'll go right into the connector. Um, the second thing I want to point out among all of this is uh, a few months ago, I put, uh, we actually changed the Interledger RFC proposals process to allow something called a proposal. And the first proposal was an Interledger HTTP auth um, profile document, essentially. And it defines um, three types of auth uh, mechanism. We showed two here. One is simple tokens, which is like kind of the common way that we auth in the ILP community. 
Um, but the document proposes two more uh, JOT-based auth profiles. Uh, so that's still a proposal. Uh, it's not like a formal anything just yet, but um, we're using all three of these auth profiles, I think, to really great effect to show how the connector can actually um, you know, support programmable usage and also uh, browser-based usage using these other um, token profiles for, for enhanced security. I'll put a link into, um, into the chat if anyone wants to take a look at the, the auth document. Thanks, that's, uh, that's really cool to see some of this uh, like permeating to other languages. Um, does anybody have any questions? Cool. Um, yeah, I, I just have one question and that's with the, the JWT. Are you doing like offline checking or how are you making sure that that token is still valid? Um, Cause that's one of the, always the, the sort of nuances with uh, JOTS is like most people try to use them for offline verification, but in the case where you want to revoke them and in, in money sense, you don't want that lead time. So are you doing any sort of blacklisting or anything or are you not concerned with that yet? I mean, right now where it's just a test net, we, we do have a little bit of freedom to play it loose and fast. But so a few things right now, one is we set a relatively low session expiration value inside of the job. We're setting it to one hour. The other thing too, is the way that we have it set up, we can, since we're, uh, you know, we, we just have our well-known endpoint, well-known, you know, that well-known slash JWKS.json endpoint set up. It's pretty trivial for us to also just rotate keys if we needed to. So we, we don't have anything as fine-grained as blacklisting specific jobs, but if there's any kind of issue and we needed to do key rotation, we could effectively expire the jobs that are already issued immediately. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah and compared to a... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just want to say congrats to the team as well. If anybody hasn't seen, I'll, I'll link a post to um, a blog post that Spring released there, some of the stuff. So they recently released this wallet, I think more sort of production ready. And I was testing it out. And what's quite nice is the interoperability between them and Rafiki Money seems to have stayed quite, quite close together, which I, I think is a, a great step for all the intellectual communities. Yeah, I wanted to point out uh, along those lines, um, like Rafiki.money was built, you know, months ago, maybe. Uh, certainly, I didn't build it. And no one on the Spring team really contributed much to it. So it was its own implementation, which is awesome. And then at the same time, later in time, the Spring team could come along and build its wallet. And the integration between Spring Wallet and Rafiki Wallet, I think took all of like five minutes. It was like me and Matt and Neil exchanging Slack messages to just peer. Um, and if you go into either wallet, you can actually make payments between the two wallets, which is sweet. And I think that's amazing. Like it's amazing that two different teams from two different companies in two different time periods even uh really without coordinating coordinating very much uh can deploy software and it's like automatically works with um they work with each other and that's really a testament to like what we're doing in interledger with with standards yeah i agreed and some of that code that, that's running on the rafiki money currently is quite old that we actually struggling to even patch so with the newer, newer stuff coming out, I'd be interested to see how that, um, how, how that if we can make that uh, turnover swift as, oh, as seamless as it was initially as well. So that should be interesting. Yeah. Um, on the spring side, certainly we're, we're looking forward to open payments. And I think, I hope this same process repeats, right? We, we, if we get the specs right for open payments, we should be able to independently develop software and then like, turn it on one day and, and our two wallets will like keep interoperating together. Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah, thanks for that guys. Um, obviously I just wanna open up for like 10 more seconds in case anybody else wants to add anything. I will say um, I, 
uh, I tried really hard in the uh, HTTP auth profiles to outline, you know, like a pros cons sort of comparison of the different token and auth schemes. So I think uh, one thing I learned writing that document is that uh, there's no one single right auth scheme. Um, I think that the truth is more that um, different auth schemes can help improve security in different contexts. So um, anyway, I guess that sort of touches back to your earlier question, Matt, around, you know, what are the trade-offs between using simple tokens versus uh, jots and et cetera. So um, definitely more, more there in that doc. And if anyone has questions or suggestions there, um, that's still a proposal. So we can always do uh, PRs to that thing. Thanks. And I'll just add there that some of this conversation is coming up in the work that we're doing in the TX auth group with IETF. Um, basically, like they use opaque tokens, but it's not very like uh, the standard hasn't really been described between what is known as the client and the resource server. So the client would be somebody initiating a connection and the resource server would be a, an ILP connector or node in this case. Um, and that has there's always been like an implicit way it's been done, not an explicit way. And some of the newer work, they, they're trying to be a bit more explicit about that. So I'd be interested to see what they discuss there because they have a lot of experience in this. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, we should we should also sort of, I have it on my to-do to like kind of uh, more formally get involved there. So uh, like one learning we had in, in deploying Spring Wallet is that um, with either simple tokens or HS256 tokens, um, the deployment is actually pretty difficult because you end up having these disparate systems that need to coordinate uh, shared secrets or tokens depending on how they're accessing each other. The browser makes it even more complicated because, for example, like throwing a simple token into the DOM can um, that never expires even uh, can also have other like sort of knock-on effects. So, yeah, all kinds of interesting. Um, sort of problems and things to be thinking about. Uh, but RS-256 really solved a lot of problems for us, so. Yeah, for sure. Um, and with that, David, you're gonna continue the next discussion because you brought up the initial PR. Um, so I'm gonna link to the PR here in um, the, the, the chat. Um, but you brought up a thing about content negotiation with payment pointers. And I think there's a broader discussion on payment pointers in the Interledger community. So I'll open with you and then I think uh, we can start from there. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, let me, uh, so there was a bunch of back and forth in that PR. Um, I guess let me just give some context, at least uh, sort of my, um, like why I opened the PR and then why I ultimately closed it. And then um, I'll talk to some of the like questions I still have, which are kind of at the bottom of that conversation thread in issue four. Uh, and then we could kind of take it from there. Um, but yeah, like I think ultimately like the payment pointers spec is amazing. Um, it defines in my view, this, this thing that is, um, like, you know, we all, we all conceived of it as an interledger identifier for lack of a better term. Um, and maybe that's not how we all conceived of it, but um, the way the spec originally turned out is it had this concept of content negotiation. So you could, you could, you know, map your payment pointer to some kind of URL and then you could make a request on it and, and get your SPSB connection details. Um, so for a while, the spec, it just um, was sort of silent. I'm like, um, or, or maybe it had an example, I think, at one point of SPSP. But as written at that time, it was pretty neat and innovative, I thought, because you could, you could hit those endpoints with uh, other accept headers and do all kinds of things with a payment pointer, which uh, to me was cool. Like, it, it definitely had use in ILP, <clears throat> but it could have any kind of use for anything, uh, which to me felt like a really good spec. Um, it, it was simple enough to just not necessarily preclude any particular kind of use case. I think that has become maybe controversial and you know, we, should, we should definitely talk more as a community about that. Um, 
I guess I closed my PR because uh, I, I proposed the PR and then I went back and reread the, the RFC at least in the Interledger repo. And I realized that we didn't necessarily need to spec out any new um, uh, MIME types for those endpoints. Like uh, there's, as, as it stood, there, there wasn't really any change that needed to happen to support other use cases, which to me is like a great indicator of an awesome protocol aspect. So I closed it kind of thinking nothing more needed here. Um, but I think my interpretation maybe, or like maybe I saw payment pointers a little bit differently than people in the community. And so, you know, there's a, a very long discussion thread about what payment pointers are for and what they should not be for maybe. Um, so I, I guess I'll leave it there. Um, I definitely want to make this like a group conversation. Um, I, I suppose I'll end with, or end for now with my my preference around payment pointers is we just, we leave it as is kind of aspect in the RFCs repo and maybe we just don't care what people do with them. We'll obviously use them for interledger and if other people find other use cases to build on top of that spec, we uh, personally, I don't feel like we should be threatened by those. So um, I'm not sure there's one world where we don't need to debate what people do outside of interledger community. Um, but agree that or I can kind of see where that can be controversial. So I'll, I'll stop there and happy to hear other thoughts. Well, I think, I think one comment I wanted to make is, is somebody um, asked me recently, you know, if we didn't want this use case of, of using payment pointers outside the context of ILP, then how come payment pointers have content negotiation at all? Like, isn't that a feature that sort of, implies that that's how they were meant to be used. And I can't speak for anyone else and, and what was going on in anyone else's head, but you know, this is Stefan. So for, for, my, for me personally, the, the reason I was in favor of putting in the content negotiation was meant to be a mechanism similar to how it works in TLS, where you know, if we need to upgrade something, um, in the case of, of Intelligent, I was envisioning things like compliance, protocols or something like that, um, there would be a mechanism so that you could roll out a new protocol while the old one was still supported and it would sort of automatically figure out which version is the highest version that both sides support and so that way um, you'd be able to uh, to kind of seamlessly transition from like, you know, SPSP version 4 to some future SPSP version 5 or open payments or something like that. Um, I think from my vantage point, at least, it's really important that the user experience of using a payment pointer is one where um, it sort of just works, the trademark, you know, like it just works. Um, and the problem I have with using payment pointers in different contexts is like, from a user's perspective, um, it removes information, which is, I no longer know that when I see a payment pointer, I can use that in my ILP wallet. You know, it's no longer a safe assumption. Um, and so while you're correct that you can't stop anyone from doing that, I do think that if people did do that, it would be very bad for ILP adoption because the main benefit of ILP is that sort of just works kind of user experience. And so by compromising that from, again, just from the user's perspective, um, I think it would make it much harder to convince users to, to use any of this technology. Um, because, you know, it's just there, there isn't that strong positive user experience of brand association. Thing. Uh, that's an interesting point, yeah. Stefan. Thank, uh, I, I appreciate that. I, I wonder if that's not... Um, I, um, I'm, what I'm, where I'm going with that is, I, I wonder if the real, like, sort of gateway to interledger adoption isn't necessarily that part of the user experience. Um, and what I mean by that is, uh, if we if we imagine a world where there are millions of users with interledger accounts, it seems like they're going to need to be onboarded through through wallets, and those wallets will 
control that user experience, right? So I guess maybe the, the one thing I would push back on in terms of, of what would either inhibit or enhance interledger adoption, um, it seems like it's gonna be the UX of all the wallets that eventually deploy interledger. And I don't, I'm not sure that the, uh, the prime use case that those wallets are, are it's good that it's going to hinge on is going to be like you type in an identifier and it says payment did or didn't work because that's going to exist in in both worlds like you can imagine a world where interledger is the only network in town and a bunch of wallets have deployed it but it's pretty likely that like not every interledger subnetwork is going to route to every other interledger subnetwork and so it's likely we're still going to see that UX problem, even if Interledger is the only protocol that uses payment um, payment pointers. You're assuming they'll happen at the same frequency, though. And you're also assuming that they're equally bad if this happens later versus now. I think one of the big problems is that Interledger is still in its infancy. And so this kind of confusion, um, especially when it comes from inside the Interledger community to people outside, is very harmful versus you know, in the future, if a few people are using a different interledger network, like let's say two wallets create a, a different interledger network because they want to change some specs or whatever, if, if it's made it far enough along that people, people have some sense of what the, the real interledger is or, or whatever, you know, the, the largest interledger network, I think the, the magnitude of that problem is less. What also jumps to mind for me is, is when you're talking about different intelligent networks, I think that is a pretty catastrophic failure, um, which it, in and of itself may um, cause intelligent to fail. It's like if there are separate subnetworks. I think I would refer to some of the work that Ben Cerf has done, basically warning about how the internet is, is threatening to split into you know, several different separate subnetworks. If you think of some of the censorship that's going on and some of the you know, this different directions that the standards are taking. Where, for instance, in China, people are working on, um, you know, different network standards that would be incompatible with what other people are using. And he kind of points out that the internet's entire utility is in interoperability. And so if that's no longer guaranteed, you know, people vastly underestimate how damaging that would be to the, to the internet and, and its value proposition. So, when I think of Interledger, I think it's incredibly important that, as Ben says, there is one sort of main network. And that doesn't mean you can't use Interledger protocol for other use cases in your local environment or something like that. That doesn't hurt anyone. However, if it was sort of split down the middle, I think that would be extremely bad. Yeah, so, so our, uh, it feels like we're arguing or debating maybe um, two different things in one, right? One is what makes a good protocol. And in the case of like payment pointer, like, I mean, it seems like we either have content negotiation or we don't. Or we have some explicit language in the payment pointer spec that says something like, the only kind of um, accept header that SPSP endpoints take or, or that payment pointers take is the SPSP header or the open payments header or whatever, uh, which we could do, but it, it seems like the, the valid concerns, like I, I'm sympathetic to um, Ben and, and Stefan, like both your, both your um, arguments are, you know, maybe even true, let, let, let's say that, that you're absolutely right. It seems like those are concerns for a different layer of the stack. Meaning payment pointer should, should just still be designed as like an, an independent layered thing. And then like maybe, and like not debated maybe, and the debate should move to, you know, people that wanna build things on payment pointers, like it, what does your UX look like? What are your network support? Um, that kind of thing. Like, is there a place where we can decouple the debate from the spec and just make a good spec, irrespective of how we think people are, or, or how we fear people might use it, and then have a separate debate around, okay, 
we know the spec says this thing now, how are people using it? Cause like in the interledger community, um, like we're, we're just talking about how we use interledger. Like we, we do know there's this other potential use case of a spec defined in interledger, but I, it, I don't know that we're going to prevent, be able to prevent that on a global scope anyway, like any of our protocols that we build, people may come along and use them however they use them. And it, that shouldn't necessarily dictate how we spec our RFCs. So I, I definitely agree that, you know, people can use the technology however they want. I mean, that's the you know, part of the whole point of having it be open is that we don't necessarily foresee how people should use it. Um, and therefore we shouldn't restrict it. Um, and also just to maximize the value of the technology, I think it makes sense for it to be open. Um, I do think though that, you know, we are investing a lot of time and resources uh, and for whatever our motivations are, we are trying to get this off of off the ground as a network. And so if you're trying to achieve a goal, and in this case, the shared goal is to get, to grow the live intelligent network, um, then surely we should have some kind of strategy. And of course, you know, people may disagree about strategy. They may have different, you know, sub strategies. Um, but I, I do think it's worth having that discussion to basically say, you know, can we come to some common ground? If we can't, that's fine. But if we can, surely that would be preferable because then everyone in the community is pulling in the same direction and we have a better overall chance of, of actually getting this to a scale where it's a viable network in its own right and becomes self-sustaining. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I think what's in the RFC doesn't particularly matter because like right now, you know, you know there's been a time for a while when the RFC has said, you know, you can, you can have different content types and nobody was, was planning on, on using that for anything other than interledger. And we could also have it where the spec says, you must use it for interledger, but then, you know, anybody who wants to use an identifier that looks like that, like the RFC is not like, it's not legally binding or anything. Like it doesn't stake out that identifier. Like it, at the end of the day, it's just like, we all need to be in agreement about what our strategy is. Like Steve mm -hmm. said. Like yeah, David, I, something we, sorry, like something we discussed earlier is like the, the beauty of like how we were basically able to have our two disparate systems and they were able to interrupt quite easily. Like something that keeps coming to my mind, I'm just trying to think like how this would work is like if payment pointers meant two different things fundamentally. Um, if I asked you for a payment, like to give me a payment pointer to send funds to, and those systems weren't able to operate like or were operating on two different systems like how, how are we meant to display that are we meant to just say to the users sorry this doesn't work um i mean that's sort of what you get with card networks where you get these domestic card networks that like only work in certain countries um and that's a poor user experience for if you leave the country but obviously a lot of them have like people in that country all the time but that's because cards become so ubiquitous with Visa and MasterCard, those have just become the de factos. Like on some level, I, I see sometimes, I don't know if I, the, the, like I question the branding of payment pointers is important, but because we're using it as the user facing thing for now, it probably is important for that there isn't conflict with it. Um, Cause we haven't done user studies, so we don't know either way. Um, but I, I just don't know how to resolve the fact that like if I put in a payment pointer and it's for some other system, like, and it fails, how, what, what happens there? Like that, that's a poor user experience and that's what we're trying to like avoid. I mean, the funny thing is like this line of, of this sort of line of reasoning is what led us to interledger in the first place. If we were to say, well, we want to be able to have a multi-currency system, but we have this flaw where if you have two people who aren't on a common network, it doesn't work. So how do we solve that? Well, maybe we introduce a, a, another party who goes in the middle, who has both systems and, you know, followed for three or so years. That's where we are today. And it, it just kind of feels like we've now, now people, we've, we've sort of gone full circle because now people are looking at interledger and they're like, well, wait, what if we just did this where two people have to have a common system? So, so I think there, there's like two, ways to look at interledger and i think for 
you know, three plus years, I looked at it as the, it's going to be this new network that everyone can join and there will never be like kind of the way you just described it, Ben, like, like it doesn't make sense that there would be different um, account holders like Alice and Bob, if they're on the interledger, they should be able to route to each other. If that's um, true, then everything about the UX and the user experience and the brand is valid. And I would, I would sort of take that side of the argument, but uh, you know, like three plus years later of hoping and wishing that somebody would run like a very open mainnet connector. Uh, I realize we have mainnet connectors, but they're not open. I can't go sign up and make uh, interledger payments broadly. It's, it's, a, it's a small network right now, which is good, but that's not the ultimate vision of interledger. The ultimate vision of interledger is we want, let's say everyone in the United States to have be making payments on interledger. And what I've, what I've come to is that if we take it from a top down approach where we start with, we want a, this huge global interoperable network. Um, I think that might be a mistake and, and here's why. Um, if you look at even the internet, right? The internet is one big open protocol and we have like kind of a Western and an Eastern internet at this point, right? We have uh, an internet in China and now we have an internet in Russia and an internet in the US. And for all intents and purposes, they may use the same protocols, but they don't perfectly interoperate. And that's a human problem. Um, and I think whether we like it or not, we're going to have that human problem with interledger. Like there's, it's just probably a fact of reality that if the entire world rolled out interledger protocol, the human networks are gonna, are gonna segment. The Chinese may not allow their interledger payments to go to the US on grounds of currency control because their currency is fundamentally a different beast than the US dollar. And so I've flipped my approach to how do we make interledger succeed, which is not let's start with a worldwide network, but actually let's start with small disparate networks because that's actually what, what we see happening anyway. And it's also a, a fallout of regulation. So for example, like there is a mainnet network, but to get on it, you need, you need certain things. You need licenses, you need, you know, there's legal agreements and whatever, like you could imagine another interledger network, a sub network spinning up with, um, 10 companies and it might take some time to actually be able to route that network to the network that coil runs on right now, for example. And I feel like we've all said that's the end of the world or that's horrible, but like that's actually the internet. The internet did not start with one global network. It started with small networks that eventually peered with each other. And I think if we take that approach to interledger, um, pay, you know, use, using payment pointers for like multi-use actually helps in that regard instead of hurting. If we were to say there's multiple small interledger networks, that's one thing. I think what we're talking about though is like actually having multiple competing standards using the same identifier, um, which is a different scenario. But I, I don't know, I just can't help but hear through that argument, like there will be problems in the future, so let's introduce problems of the same class now. You know, it's like there's, like I agree with you that this is a challenge we'll have to overcome in the future, but I just don't, I mean, and, and of course we've had different, like we've had different experiences working on interledger. And so I'm sure that's colored like what we think the best approach is, but mm. w the fact that, the fact that fragmentation on the network is possible in the future, I don't see that as like, we should give up trying to make a, a network that is, that is one global network. I see that as like, we need to be trying harder. You know, we need to make sure that that future doesn't come to pass. Um, I, I would also say that, that um, we've, it's not that we've started by creating the one live network. We actually started by a little bit more like what you're describing, which is like having several people using Interledger for their use cases, right? Like we've had Ripple using it um, for XCurrent, 
We've had the Gates Foundation using it for Mojo Loop. Um, we've had Brick using it for their stuff. Um, and what we realized was that, well, if they're not connected, there's nothing stopping people from making modifications to the standard, right? And so, you know, Ripple customized their version of Interledger and, and uh, Gates customized their version of Interledger. And now they're, you couldn't just flip a switch and connect them anymore. Um, and I think that's actually what led us to the only way to get a true global interoperable network is to have it be, have there be a single instance that people sort of, that it grows and then people onboard. And I would say when you're talking about the history of the internet, I think the way you're characterizing it is a bit misleading because the networks that existed pre-internet, they're more like the payment networks that we have today, which are like, you know, um, you know, PayPal and, and, and ACH and, and Visa and so on, in that they are sort of proprietary or, you know, maybe a, they're like an organization that's holding it together, um, but they're ultimately separate from each other and they use different technology in many cases. Um, and so what the internet did is right on top of those existing, that existing infrastructure that's similar to how Intel is just proposing to settle on different networks and, and sort of like the physical manifestation of Intelledger is, you know, I'm, I'm making an ACH transfer or I'm sending cryptocurrency over the XRP ledger. But there's still, oh, there was still only one internet instance, or at least like there was one main one that grew from four nodes to more and more over time. And so um, I also would echo Ben's comments that today the internet is still one internet. I can still send an email to people in Russia or China. Um, it's not separate yet. Um, there's certainly a threat that that might happen. Um, and definitely don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, you know, just because I agree that there will be some connections that won't be possible, like US to an OFIC sanctioned country, for example, won't be possible, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't aim for that. Uh, and then one, sorry, one final point um, regarding sort of the vision for intellectual, you said that you know, our vision for Interledger is that everyone is, is on the network. And I think that like, at least for me personally, that vision has evolved a little bit in that, you know, as you start to apply regulations and you start to use real money, you start to work with companies that are actually trying to deploy this in practice um, or are deploying it in practice, um, you know, you have to adapt your, your strategy a little bit. And so one of the things that we learned was that most of the time, you actually don't want to send money to the application wherever it happens to be in the network. So for example, in the case of Cinnamon, when a browser is paying Cinnamon, right now it's sending the money to Cinnamon. And if you think about it, that doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense because that's just the application is going to be in some arbitrary place in the network. And then if it pays out to the creator or it pays out to the people that actually run Cinnamon, it, the money has to go over the network again and so you potentially have an extra set of currency exchanges and so on. And so what we started thinking about, and this is where this third party receipt stuff that we've been talking about comes in, is that really what you want is you just want the wallets to be on the network. And so you can pay into any of those wallets, get a receipt, and then that's the thing that your application processes. So you don't have to send the money twice and you don't have to open Interledger up to you know, just anybody to send packets. You can say like the wallet support these higher level protocols like open payments. And that's really anything, everything that you need to build different applications. Now, I would say that's a pretty new idea, pretty new view. And we definitely still have to validate that, but it seems a lot less scary from a regulatory point of view. And so I wouldn't say it's, it's an automatic given that we want everybody to have direct intelligent access. I think it's more important that, you know, if I have a wallet, I can use it for different use cases and I can have the sort of programmable money, but um, it might be that only very few use cases require raw access, similar to how very few people need raw BGP access, for example. Um, for most of the time, you can just rent a server with, with some hosting company and that's fine. Um, yeah, these are all, these are all great points. Like uh, it strikes me as maybe, oh, well, I'll speak for myself. Um, uh, I, I kind of feel like the non-interledger usage is benign. So I, I'm not necessarily of the 
of the opinion that like the interledger community should care. I, I, sorry, I am of the opinion that we shouldn't really care. We, as an interledger community, we should just continue to push forward whatever we sort of come to consensus around um, is the best way to make interledger widely adopted. But we also shouldn't, it should almost be out of scope or like a different conversation maybe if, if yeah. like Ripple and I mean, Ripple wants to do something different with a payment pointer, like we should engage that. But I don't like, if I look at it either, there's sort of like simplistically speaking two two futures, right? Either it, it works or it, it doesn't work. Um, and it, it does strike me that like, or, or some middle ground where, where it actually helps. Like you, you could imagine a world where some other entity uses payment pointers for a non-interledger use case and it ends up helping the interledger cause despite what you know people might believe. I mean, I think I would under I, I would accept things outside of the interledger space are benign if it were not, you know, having the very direct negative effect of, you know, ambig making the the identifier ambiguous, um, especially because, I mean, like it or not, like you know, Ripple is perceived as Ripple is a big part of the interledger community, and anything Ripple does is going to be associated with the things that that other people in the interledger community are doing and so if if a competing standard comes out of ripple then that's going to get people very confused you know more so than if some other random company i mean you know we've talked about like what if somebody else were to use payment pointers or something and i think in that case the the chance of people getting confused is probably less than if if ripple were to do it right because if if, if ripple is creating something that also uses payment pointers um and it's not the the regular payment pointers. It's not using interledger. I mean, I think that's that's probably a lot more confusing to people. If if it were something that uses the exact same principles, the exact same um, the exact same content negotiation and everything, but just the identifier could be distinguished in in any way, um, I think that would be massively better. And it wouldn't have to be, um, I mean, of course, I think the best scenario is if we could find out a way to, to all just be collaborating on the, the main interledger network and expanding the reach of that. Mm -hmm. But if, if other approaches are being taken too, I think at least something that is not you know, actively harmful would be better. Yeah, that's a great, I think that's a great framing. Um, and so I, I guess here's the question, um, maybe, for everyone on the group, but um, you know ben, ben and Stefan and, and Matt, you guys have been speaking most. Um, there's like two. There's two futures. Um, I have an opinion on which one I prefer, but like loosely, um, where where I totally agree. Like Ripple will have sway and mindshare, right? So in one future, Ripple can uh, take a payment pointer and make it work for two things at once. It will work on interledger. Like for example, the demo we just showed, we use payment pointers. They work on interledger and they also work on XRP ledger. And that, you know, you can imagine we roll that out to like 6 million developers um, or, or 10 million or however many millions of developers Ripple will get. And this thing gets widespread adoption and there's a risk of confusion, like, you know, concede to, concession to opposition for your, all of your arguments on the call. I look at that reality and I think that's good for Interledger because that's like six or 10 million more developers on Interledger and this other thing. And I think when people see Interledger, like that will probably be the thing that gets, gets used. The alternative is Ripple, like we, I, what I hear you guys proposing is that Ripple should use some other scheme maybe pay to or some other completely different identifier. Yeah. I mean, the problem and I first see, we roll like that, the, we roll that out sorry. to 10 million people and now 10 million people have um, a pay to scheme and how many people have payment pointers? Like, well, I think it, in that scenario, it works against like, interledger. I don't think so. Cause if, if pay to becomes really popular and all these pay to wallets support interledger, we could just switch over. 
if, if it's actually true that like the current adoption of interledger is insignificant, then switching over shouldn't be a problem. But if it is, is um, then the, is not compatible. Why not? I mean, surely it, it's just another content type. Okay. I want to so, kind of, I want to kind of describe, you know, or maybe try to explain why, you know, at least I personally get so emotional about this. It's like, we are using IntelliJ for real now. We're no longer talking about it. in theory. We have now thousands of customers. We have hundreds of websites that have put uh, payment pointers on their site. And the flow for that is we tell somebody, get a payment pointer and then put it in a meta tag. Okay. And it only works, of course, if, if it's intelligent, right? That's the only situation where our extension is actually able to pay. If now there is this other type of payment pointer out there in any form, and yes, I agree, we can't stop anyone from doing it, but it still does a ton of harm because anyone who wants to try out web monetization, there's a chance they will end up with one of the wallets that has quote unquote real payment pointers and it'll work, or they'll accidentally get a payment pointer which looks exactly the same but isn't a real payment pointer and it doesn't work. And so, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to say either this technology is crap, it doesn't work, or they might contact us, try to get support, say, like, hey, why doesn't it work? And then we'll have to explain, well, you know, this is, a, this is an intelligent payment pointer. What you have is an XRP payment pointer. These are not interoperable. You have to go to a different wallet to get an, an ILP payment pointer. They can you see how that would cause a ton of confusion and be a huge, huge problem for not just our business, but any other business that's built on Intelligent. Again, yeah, I, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about the tone. I'm just like, this is really <laughs> fucking important for us, you know? And um, so anyway, sorry for pardon my French. I, I do see that. I, I, I guess I would want to underscore that the strategy of Ripple is not, um, hey, there's a bunch of payment pointers that look like payment pointers that only do XRP. Like, the, the way the world should work is that all payment pointers should support interledger. I think the proposal from you, Ripple is just they other... support more. I mean, if they all support interledger, why, why add in the other content types? I mean, I thought the, the strategy there, like what, what we've heard, and I mean, maybe there's, maybe there's multiple ways this strategy can be pursued, right? But I mean, we've also heard like, at first, we're going to do things other than interledger, and then eventually these payment pointers will become interledger. And, will. Um, and I think that's a very big difference from our perspective because one of them, I mean, because if, if, if people are ending up with things that look like payment pointers but aren't using interledger, we have all of those problems Stefan's talking about. Yeah, that's fair. That's just, just, just to be clear, like if, if there's always interledger available as a fallback, then it would you know, generally always work, and we would have no issues with it at all. Mm -hmm. um, it is, it is the, the user experience of, I, I, someone tells me to get a payment pointer, I do, and, and then it's just the wrong kind of payment pointer and it doesn't work, it, is a, it's just like it's very problematic. Um, so as long as we can avoid that, I'm, we're totally happy with it. Yeah, I mean, I guess in fairness, it's a fair criticism. Like the, the goal is not, in my opinion, the goal is not to get a bunch of people on XRP only payment pointers. Like the whole strategy is to get wallets to adopt uh, interledger. It's just that going and getting a bunch of wallets to adopt interledger preemptively is harder than getting them to adopt a, an identifier standard as a gateway to interledger. I do see the criticism though. That's not a perfect strategy. And there probably in that world will be times where you'll, you'll have wallets that maybe adopt the identifier standard and don't yet adopt interledger and, the, and Stefan, your, your example will probably happen. Um, I think it's maybe just a difference in strategy, like the belief in, well, there is a belief around that is like, that is an easier gateway to interledger than going all in interledger first. But it sounds like the, the real desire is to use a different identifier. Like, you know, Ripple should, should pick something else. And I, 
I, I'm sympathetic to that. That's not unreasonable. And I can, I think I can kind of see where you guys are coming from. I'm still of the opinion that that will ultimately be worse because like it's brand dilution still. Like in my mind, it would be better to have a payment pointer that maybe doesn't work than to have a completely different competing system. Definitely. What's, I mean, I, I would strongly say that having something that is a totally different system is better than something that is uh, overlaps with the current system. Yeah, if I might add a few comments, uh, Ms. Neil. So I don't think we're in love with like, the goal isn't to make people use payment pointers. The goal is to, to make people use ILP, right? So if you're to take this analogy to like HTTP, you could have said in the early days, we really want people to use HTTP identifiers for everything, in which case you use it for, you know, World Wide Web. And what if email came along and said, oh, we should use HTTP for emails as well. They could have done that, right? Like HTTP could be your email address, but it would have been confusing because now I have this HTTP thing. Is it, is it web or is it email? But they didn't. They chose to pick, you know, HTTP means something. It's, it's what I put into a browser. It's how I locate, you know, resources on the internet. Whereas the email address, it's the SMTP protocol. Like you kind of had some assumptions there. So the, the argument that having two different ILP networks, but both using payment pointers, like that's fine because the payment pointer still implies that it's interledger. That's different than if the payment pointer implies maybe interledger, but it might be some other different type of thing. Like those aren't the same argument that, that having different ILP networks is the same as having two, two different kinds of systems, both using the same identifier. So I'm pretty sympathetic to the, we want to have interledger and we want to have an identifier that people can associate with interledger. The, the actual identifier, you know, the dollar sign with um, the domain and then the, you know, the, the slash, whatever, like it's, it's a standard. It's one we like, but like, it's, it's not important that that's like the standard that gets used for everything, not including interledger. It's just the, the important thing is that there is some standard that people associate with interledger. That's the argument I'm hearing. And I'm pretty sympathetic to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like where, where interledger is at right now, um, it really doesn't have any identifier other than the payment point and, and systems like, you know, when we're talking about XRP, you have the, the XRP address, of course, but interledger doesn't have anything like that. And so I think if we're creating a, um, a big multi-identifier to refer to everything, each of those component technologies has its own address format too. Like if I want an application that works specifically for XRP, I can still write something that uses XRP addresses. But in this world where the payment pointer is the big multi-identifier and I want to write something that specifically uses interledger, then the, yeah, the problem becomes, well, this multi-identifier is also the only thing we have to talk about interledger. And then there's no way to say, I just want to use interledger. And I'll admit that we were being a bit presumptuous slash cheeky by using an identifier or standardizing on an identifier that doesn't explicitly say ILP. I think one of the options was ILP colon and then, you know, the rest of the payment pointer instead of just a dollar sign. And um, we could have very easily gone with that. And I think maybe this is coming back to haunt us a little bit that we weren't more explicit in the identifier. I think the only the only uh, counter point I would add, uh, Neil makes good points, although the difference between HTTP and email identifiers are different use cases. Here we're talking about two different payment networks. And I think if we bifurcate our identifiers, we're going to start competing with each other and we, we don't need to. I, I, I disagree. But I, I do. I think by having different settlement mechanisms, we're competing with each other. The different, the different identifiers just make it so that people can see which is which, and, and that makes the competition maybe a little bit more, more healthy. But I think the fact that we're using different settlement mechanisms is what makes the different networks that are competing. So you're comfortable if, if Ripple gets traction with, uh, from a branding perspective with a completely different scheme? And well, then confident. it means that Interledger has to change? No, I, I'm pretty confident that it won't. It's just that um, I think that if they use the same identifier, then even though they don't get traction, they'll still cause a lot of confusion. 
Well, if, if they don't get traction, then it's this is a non-issue, right? Like the, the well, thing we're trying we're to already, guard against is that they getting, do get traction. We're already getting emails from Wall saying like, "Hey, Ripple reached out saying that there's this new ILP payment pointer thing. What like you know is this you guys putting them up to it? Like we're like no no no. Like people are already thinking that this is ILP. You know this this pay ID thing is ILP. It's very difficult for somebody who's not on this call, who's not involved in the community day to day to tease those nuances apart. And so, you know, it, it's just confusion that we're worried about. Yeah. And so if you avoid the confusion, you, you know, it, like I said, you know, we have no, we realize it's a big world out there. You know, there's lots of different opinions and strategies and everyone should be free to, to do whatever they want. And again, like we can't stop anyone from doing something that is confusing um, and, and that is more likely to be confused with ILP. Um, but to the extent that we have a shared goal, which is to ultimately make ILP successful, it feels like we should be able to reach some kind of agreement to avoid that uh, measure of confusion. And, and yeah, I, I do think like if, if pay two is success or, you know, pay ID or, or pay two or whatever, whatever we make this new identifier, um, if that's successful and it ends up in a world where this thing just always ends up resolving in a ledger because, you know, all of these people have, have gone through the integration to, to fully upgrade to that. Um, then, yeah, I think that's a pretty good situation too, because I mean, maybe there's not even an upgrade that needs to happen. Maybe we do become, maybe there is a world where like, you know, you still have the payment pointer to talk specifically about interledger, but for 99% of the time, the pay ID means interledger anyway. And so that's a fine identifier to use too. That's true. And Gentlemen, I'll just remind you, we have gone in five minutes over, so if you've got any closing things, I would ask you to do it now. I, I suppose this aside, um, I, I did have one process question. Like, we have an RFC for payment pointers on Interledger's GitHub, and Adrian has a great website. Uh, I think it's Adrian. Um, also, with I, guess, I think at this point, with the Open Payments Works, slightly different language. Uh, I guess question for the group is like, what is payment pointers? Is that an interledger spec or is it just this thing that um, is, is sort of divorced from the interledger community and lives at paymentpointers.org? I mean, I think insofar as we want to like encourage people who are using payment pointers to make it interledger, it probably makes sense to roll it into interledger. Um, I mean, I think, I think the best way to go forward would probably just be like, let's clarify payment pointers of the interledger identifier. And then all the ideas that, all the ideas from payment pointers that, that you like as a, as a way to make a, a sort of meta payment identifier, um, that could then be, you know, easily ported into it, a new, a new standard, something that can be tailored specifically to the, the sort of pay ID use case. Yeah, so is the is whatever RFC, forget the number, um, the place to... 26. Yeah, is that the place to make proposal? Like, is that gonna be the normative thing? If so, that's cool. We should just sort of all agree that's where we that's where normative language lives, or we should um, deprecate that thing and say the website is is the normative thing. Right now we have two probably and have they diverge. This, we could probably have this discussion on GitHub and let, let more people weigh in like Adrian. Um, sure. I think we'll probably have a, more of an opinion there. Cool. Okay. Um, Thank you, everybody. I think that was a, a lively discussion. Um, I hope everybody's, uh, there's a lot of people on lockdown, so everybody just stay, stay sane. And if you, if you need help, I'll just mention that everybody's there to be reached out to, me included, if you just wanna chat, just ping me on the Interledger form and we can set up a Zoom session. Just everybody just keep your mental health good and uh, yeah, keep, keep productive. Thank and, you everybody, and I just, enjoy the rest. I, I just wanna briefly yep. say to sort to, you know, as a closing remark, like, you know, even if things get a little bit um, emotional or, or heated, I, I, I think 
it's it's worth saying that we're all on team Interledger, so um, yep. nothing has changed about that. Um, and especially for anyone, any third parties listening to that as well, it's like, you know, we are all people that know each other. We've worked together for a long time. So, um, you know, this is all in good, in good uh, spirits. Yeah, likewise. Uh, yep. Thanks for saying that. All right. Thanks. Eve. Thanks, thanks everyone. Guys. Thanks. Um, yeah. Next call in two weeks time. Um, that will be the 15th of April. Cheers, everybody.